is our American stories you're listening to you too and they're a great song about Martin Luther King the Reverend Martin Luther King and for the hour we're going to spend well all of it almost all of it on his very last speech the last speech he ever gave and it's worth hearing folks because the words are as prophetic today as they were then and as important he was assassinated on this day in history in 1968 And the day before, he had traveled to Memphis in support of striking African-American city sanitation workers. The workers had staged a walkout earlier that year to protest unequal wages and working conditions imposed by then-Mayor Henry Loeb. On April 3rd, King addressed a gathering at the Mason Temple. His airline flight to Memphis had been delayed by a bomb threat, but he made his planned speech anyway because, well, threats didn't deter King. There had been threats on his life many times before, too many times, his wife said, to tell. And that night, what a speech King delivered. It's now known as the I've Been to the Mountaintop speech, and we want to play you large parts of it because it was so good, so prophetic, and it's what we do here on this show. We bring you the stories of this country whenever possible and wherever possible from the people who made history themselves. Here's how King started off his last speech. Something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And you know, if I was standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now. And the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt. And I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. 
I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire. And I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named had his habitat. And I would watch Martin Luther as he tacked his 95 theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg, but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself but I wouldn't stop there strangely enough I would turn to the Almighty and say if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. And something was. What words, by the way, only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. More on this remarkable speech, King's last speech, Martin Luther King's last speech. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to our American stories and Martin Luther King's very last speech at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. And by the way, if you've never heard King talk before in such full pieces and passages, well, again, that's why we're here. The snippets we get, the short sound bites, they just don't do this man's eloquence and passion and writing. My goodness, what a writer. And what a delivery. Musical to the end, Martin Luther King, a great sense of music. Let's pick up where we left off. King continues. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and non-violence in this world is non-violence or non-existence. That is where we are today. And also in the human rights revolution, if something isn't done and done in a hurry, to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. I can remember, I can remember when Negroes were just going around, as Ralph has said, so often scratching where they didn't itch and laughing when they were not tickled. But that day is all over. We mean business now and we are determined to gain our rightful place in God's world. And that's all this whole thing is about. 
We aren't engaged in any negative protests and in any negative arguments with anybody. We are saying that we are determined to be men. We are determined to be people. We are saying... We are saying that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, we don't have to live like we are forced to live. Again and again, you would hear King talk about God and the Almighty. And so when you hear him referenced to as Dr. King, that doctorate was in theology and he was a reverend. He proceeds in the speech to talk about some of the tricks and skullduggery that the city of Memphis had played with the striking black workers. There had been injunctions. There had been the use of law to block legal protest, something King had seen before with Bull Connor. But that never deterred King and never changed him or backed him off the entire idea of peaceful resistance. King continued his speech. We aren't going to let any may stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement in disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember in Birmingham, Alabama, when we were in that majestic struggle there, we would move out of the 16th Street Baptist Church day after day. By the hundreds, we would move out, and Bull Connor would tell them to send the dogs for us. And they did come, but we just went before the dogs singing, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. <laughs> Bull Connor next would say, turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the trans physics that we knew about. And that was the fact that there was a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. And we went before the fire hoses. We had known water. If we were Baptists or some other denominations, we had been immersed. If we were Methodists and some others, we had been sprinkled, but we knew water. That couldn't stop us. And we just went on before the dogs and we would look at them and we'd go on before the water hoses and we would look at it. And we'd just go on singing, over my head, I see freedom in there. Then we would be thrown into paddy wagons, and sometimes we were stacked in there like sardines in a can. And they would throw us in, and old bull would say, take them off. And they did, and we would just go on in the paddy wagon singing, we shall overcome. And every now and then we'd get in jail, and we'd see the jailers looking through the windows, being moved by our prayer and being moved by our words and our songs. And there was a power there 
which Bull Connor couldn't adjust, adjust to. And so we ended up transforming Bull into a steer, and we won our struggle in Birmingham. Now we've got to go on in Memphis just like that. I call upon you to be with us when we go out Monday. And that's Martin Luther King speaking in Memphis the night before he was assassinated. And my goodness, those lines. Every now and then we'd get in jail and we'd see the jailers looking through the windows being moved by our prayers and being moved by our words and our songs. And there was a power there which Bull Connor couldn't adjust to. When we come back, more on Martin Luther King's last speech. As always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful and good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. More of Dr. King's final message after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with our This Day in History. Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, and the night before, he gave the speech at Mason Temple in Memphis that you're listening to now. And before we continue, I just wanted to go back and read just one little part of that last clip. And if you've never read Letters from a Birmingham Jail, do it. It's short, and it's beautiful. And King wrote it himself while he was in jail to pastors across the South, white pastors, who were saying to Martin, slow down, why so fast? And all through it, he's quoting scripture and explaining why God's justice couldn't wait. And here's what he wrote in that last clip that I want to read. Quote, I can remember when Negroes were just going around, scratching where they didn't itch, and laughing 
when they weren't tickled. The inhumanity that African Americans faced in the South, in the whole country, was just, well, diabolical. And King was here with God's help to rectify it. And now let's take you back to the speech and back to the way King and the activists were being treated on the ground by Memphis officials, government officials, which at the time, Memphis' city government was all white. Now about injunctions. We have an injunction and we're going into court tomorrow morning to fight this illegal, unconstitutional injunction. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. going on. We need all of you. You know what's beautiful to me? is to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos who said, when God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. And King wasn't finished. He continued now getting straight down into Scripture, into the book he loved so much, the Bible. One day a man came to Jesus. And he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points he wanted to trick Jesus. And show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical 
and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on the dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priests passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. And finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now you know we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonial was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal route rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. You know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And folks, that's some preaching. It doesn't get better than that. And when we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this remarkable speech. You're not going to want to miss it. Martin Luther King assassinated on this day in history in 1968. And this is his final speech at the Mason Temple 
in Memphis. As always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Reverend Martin Luther King's final speech the night before he was gunned down on this day in history in 1968. And so you just heard King eloquently tell the story of the Good Samaritan, real preaching. And now we take you towards the end of this great speech and one heck of a story. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing, and I said, yes. The next minute, I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through, and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, 
who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962 when Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up and whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And here's how King closed out his very last speech. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night 
that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And those were King's last final words in public. He was on the balcony at the Lorraine Motel, which is now a part of the National Civil Rights Museum, and standing just outside his room talking. And at 6.01 p.m., he was struck by a single bullet fired from a Remington Model 760. The force of that shot ripped off King's necktie. He fell violently backward onto the balcony, unconscious. Friends heard the shot from inside the motel room and ran to the balcony to find King on the deck, bleeding profusely from the wound in his cheek. Andrew Young, a colleague from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, first believed King was dead, but found he still had a pulse. King was raced to St. Joseph's Hospital, but he never regained consciousness and was pronounced dead at 7.05 p.m. According to Taylor Branch, his autopsy revealed that despite being just 39 years old, his heart was in the condition of a 60-year-old man, which Branch attributed to the stress of his 13 years in the civil rights movement. Bobby Kennedy, who was seeking his party's nomination for president in 1968, was in Indianapolis when he heard of King's death and was the first to tell the members of an audience the tragic news. Quote, For those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would say only that I can feel in my heart the same kind of feeling. You see, I had a member of my family killed, and he was killed by a white man. These remarks, by the way, surprised his aides because Bobby Kennedy had never spoken in public about his brother's assassination. Colleagues of King and the Civil Rights Movement called for a nonviolent response to the assassination to honor his most deeply held beliefs. James Farmer Jr. said these words, quote, Dr. King would be greatly distressed to find that his blood had triggered off bloodshed or disorder. I think instead the nation should be quiet. Black and white, we should be prayerful, which would be in keeping with Reverend King's life. According to biographer Taylor Branch, King's last words were to musician Ben Branch, who was scheduled to perform that night at a planned event. King said, quote, Ben, make sure to play Take My Hand, Precious Lord. Play it real pretty. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968.
Okay, bad news first. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification. Which we can't fake. And vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below. Which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now once we get down the shaft, though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well, Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment. And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. As soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning, and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those, and he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed, the metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now, and the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The Metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, 
and his credit cards. I had already gone to get a new license and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. <laughs> and that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all, and uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2, the one in the movie, and he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, up hills, down hills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was. And I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it. And it was many years later, um, almost two decades later that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels. It had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C., My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike, straight around 495, around the Capitol, right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November, and my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar, so I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute, and I came out, and that old car was gone, long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem? Well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot. And I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story. Nate Scott's story. Here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. OurAmericanNetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this edition, Take It Away. Do you love McDonald's fries? Maybe you even think they're the best in the history of mankind. Well, either way, you can thank this guy, at least partially. I developed the uh, world famous now, the McDonald's French fry computer. And that put them really on a steep incline in in sales and revenues. All right, what's the French fry computer? I don't know about this. French fry computer, your uh, audience will love to to hear as to why (laughs) McDonald's French fries are so good and so consistent. It's because of a computer? Absolutely. Uh, Once you come to know the formula, now the formula is not my invention. The formula is the invention of the Potato Research Institute, which McDonald's had started in 1967. They had determined that besides the ingredients, you must cook the fries very, very uniformly, irrespective of the size of the bat, irrespective of the starting temperature, irrespective of how many fries you put in inside to cook, you must have a constant amount of energy per cubic inch of the fry. So it's really a very advanced scientific instrument and a controller and a device. So that was the task I was, um, I was given. And, you know, I uh, so invented the product and, you know, national controls took off. Thankfully for all of us, this dude, the subject of today's American Dreamers feature, was successful. His name is Shali Kumar, and he wasn't even born in the land of the Golden Arches, the United States of America. Shali was born in India, in the foothills of the Himalayas, and for the first nine years of his life, his maternal grandparents adopted him. In India, in Hindus, this is kind of a common. And my nanaji, that is my maternal grandfather, in that family, there weren't any kids. So they wanted to have some kids. Can you imagine your grandparents saying, we don't have any kids in the house now. Can we have some of your kids? (laughs) Boy, this sure sounds foreign to us. But if you also think about it, it's a profound appreciation of human life. How did you, this lower uh, middle-class kid, get to get a degree in electrical engineering? Was that uncommon back then, or was it? It, was it, it is common? tough. It is tough. Yeah. Um, in fact, in India, the system is that roughly anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 students that will appear in high school examination. So. It's a little different than here. You know, here you are graded by your teacher here. So that's a uniform examination, and you're scored among 100,000, 200,000 students. So normal custom will be your top during those days. Let's say, call it 1960s, when I graduated from high school. Top 300 will be taken into engineering. Automatically. 
they, they will they, they are qualified they most of them 99% they will go to engineering okay next 300 will go to medical school Next 300, then different other professions. And these are just the cultural norms are so strong that everyone just followed. That's right. That that's right. So you had to be among the top 300 to get into an engineering school. That's fascinating that they put engineering higher than medicine. <laughs> I think it's changing now, but in 60s, engineering wow. was higher than medical. And in engineering itself, top was electronics. Electronics was coming up. So everybody wanted to be electronics engineer. So only the top 30 wow. will be in electronics. In that respect, uh, there's another story to tell you. In the family Shelley was born into all four of their biological children out of the over 100,000 students in the region scored among the top. Well, let's not hear it from me. Let's hear it from Shelley. The four of us, we all scored among the top 20 positions on a merit basis. Are you saying so that, that didn't happen? That, that does not family? happen. No other family. So when people look at our family and they say, what is this phenomenon? And to Shally, this phenomenon leads to an age-old question. What creates success? Is it soul? Because we believe in reincarnation. Is it genetics or is it environmental? Do you have an answer? I think it's a combination of, of the three. Hmm. Particularly, I say this because first nine years of my life, I spent with my maternal grandparents. I was an ordinary student. I never thought of scoring number one in among 200,000 students. Maybe yeah. if in my school itself, that if I'm in the middle, I thought it was pretty good. And then when I was nine years old, my family, my mother and father, uh, they took me back. And my mother is an absolutely a total disciplinarian. Makes you get up at five o'clock in the morning and regiment and it's like a real hard military school. <laughs> so so your whole life. it's environmental. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes me think it's environmental because... Sixth grade, I moved back to my parents, and first six months, I wanted to run away. I, I could not handle her discipline. <laughs> it was too tough. Okay. <laughs> send me back. Send me back. Oh, no. You had chosen not to be in this family, so you have to stay. Okay. No choice. And then they start scoring you actually in eighth grade. And all of a sudden, I'm number one in the university. I said, what? What happened? I never dreamt of that before. My mother said, you can be whatever you want to be. Uh, there, is, there is no limit. Why do you think you can't be number one in the university? And so, you know, I mean, that's, she always talked like that. Why did you come to America? It sounds like a softball question, but I'm sure you're going to give me a great answer. <laughs> uh, my life as a student was moving in two directions. One, I was getting politically engaged. Mm. And that path would have been a problem. <laughs> so my parents wanted me to get away from that. Influenced by my mother, she was a champion of fighting corruption. And as a student, I had started an organization called National 
anti-corruption organization to fight corruption in the society. India's number one problem even till today is corruption. So that was sort of my political uh, side. And the other side, I was just absolutely, totally fascinated with electronics. And I was scoring so high, uh, number one, two, or three in the university. In fact, there's a course in electronics engineering. It's called practical course, where you design and develop a product. So those days, electronics was not easy. The components were not easy to get in India. But I was so stubborn, and I found the right professor who was so interested in making me actually build the product I was designing. And, and, and that was the very first time in India somebody ever designed and built a product in college. So there the professor wanted me to go to the United States to continue my studies. And how hard it is to get parts, just to fully state this is pre-internet, right? So... <laughs> Oh, it wasn't as easy as going on the internet. Or... Oh, forget that internet, okay? It's not even a local store. So those days, if you burnt a transistor, mm-hmm. okay, uh, one part in your circuit, you will have to dispatch the storekeeper on a train, take the night train, go to Delhi, buy that part, <laughs> and come back. So, so it's a two-day affair for a storekeeper to get a transistor. So, and there is no ordering. You have to go get, go to the shop and find the transistor and get it. And that's Alex in Chicago with Shali Kumar. Our American Dreamers series from the foothills of India to the United States where he builds a big, big, big business. Our American Dreamers series continues Shali Kumar's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to our American Dreamers series, as always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, who work hard on the regulatory and public policy front to help small business owners grow into bigger business owners and live the American dream. And we're talking about Shali Kumar, who happens to be the owner of AVG, a group of companies which design and manufacture electronic products. They're headquartered, by the way, in Chicago, and they have operations around the world, and every product is manufactured right here in the United States. And when we left off, Shally was telling us about creating an electrical product in college, and it was a phase meter, a device that measures the time between sine waves. And we continue now with Alex, up in Chicago, sitting down with Shally and continuing this conversation on what it meant to his life when he got 
here to America. That came in very, very handy because when I was looking for a job, I graduated in 1970. I got my master's from IIT. That's the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. That phase meter and that design helped me a lot because 1970 was a recession year and college graduates, particularly without a permanent visa, were finding no jobs. And because of this phase meter I had built, that gave me an opportunity to get a real job as an electronics designer with a small company called Nanofast, just a 10-employee company that was building products for NASA for uh, space uh, exploration. I think just that one fact you just said, the fact that ten a 10-employee 10 company could be selling a product to NASA. Oh, yes. It's just remarkable. That speaks volumes about our country. I mean, That's talk, right. Talk about that. <laughs> right, That's right. Yeah, uh, is, uh, no question um, the, the growth of the country. You know, uh, I think the numbers are somewhere like uh, 75, 80% of all new jobs get created by small companies. Mm -hmm. And that's where the innovation, that's where the country grows from. You know, it's not the large corporations. It's the small enterprises where uh, inventive minds are rewarded. This is one country, I think probably the only country left in the world, where if you are a risk taker, you're innovative, you are going to get rewarded. America has been absolutely phenomenal uh, for me. Uh, 48 years I've been here. And many times you'll worry about that, you know, is there a, a racist component in here? Would you ever face that problem? Did you? I have never in 48 years. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, either you call it lucky or, or this is what how America is. I have never seen any discrimination against me because of my you know, skin color yeah. and my coming from India. How was integrating, though? I mean, what did you kind of expect going in? What was your picture of America? Did you ever see American movies or TV shows or books? Or no, what, what did you kind of know coming in? And then well, I, I, that, that was also an interesting experience. <laughs> Just, uh, I mean, it is a faraway land. And the first month I was writing to my mother, everything looks different. I think moon is different here. I think the sun <laughs> is different here. <laughs> and, you know, large space, just everything is so spacious. And what the expectation from India coming in here is that just everything is paved with gold. It's a golden paved city and state and country. And, you know, you never ever think of crime at all. In, in fact, when I came here in 69 and I joined uh, IIT and stayed in the dorm, that one big surprise came up. So you go to the foreign students advisory uh, room. And the first thing I was told, and I was sort of shocked at, they gave us four border streets, 31st to the north, 35th to the south, Wabash and Dearborn, four streets. If you go outside these streets, we are not responsible for your <laughs> life. What? We have come to a country where <laughs> everything is paved with gold. <laughs> and uh, you're talking about you cannot go outside this territory. 
that was sort of the ghetto. I learned the term ghetto uh, first time when he asking, oh, what is it? Why can't we go uh, outside this? Not safe, not safe. So, you know, so it was kind of a mixed uh, um, experiences. Yeah. Uh, of course, um, food was a big, big, big challenge. There was a very nice family, molars in Barrington, who had participated in what was called experiment in international living. So I had applied for that. So I was chosen to spend one month prior to joining college, IIT, to spend a month with them. And gosh, they had a problem trying to figure out what to feed me. Take me to a grocery store. Uh, I've never been to a grocery store in, uh, in India. How did you have never been to a grocery store? Because you are, uh, you are either you're served by your mother or you are in college where you go to the cafeteria and, and they serve you. So I've never, I don't know what they look like in a grocery store. And uh, so everything looks different to me. I mean, nothing like uh, what the dishes serve to me. How do I recommend or how do they even gonna make that dish? So uh, they had really a hard time figuring out what to feed me. So after about a week, what they settled on is bread and <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. So I ate that for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, for the next <laughs> 30 days. Yeah. 30 days. No, you know, today you could find any kind of food in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, great food, great Indian food, great Mexican food, great Italian food, great any food. So, but uh, did you try American food when you came here? They tried. Them? I mean, you know, they tried to give you feed pizza or hot dogs or uh, they tried to give me anything and everything which they could try, and yeah. then they just would not uh, settle. Did just you didn't wouldn't. like it? No, no. Yeah. Just, you like uh, it today? Uh, today it's very different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, today very different. They, uh, of course, you know, actually uh, for food wise. Here, for a person who has got a taste for, or who has grown up in India, Indian food is the number one. Mexican will be number two. Huh. Italian will be number three. <laughs> that is the closest. Because, uh, you know, there is a lot of uh, tomato preparations in the Indian food. Yeah. Italian also has a lot of tomato-based. And, and pizza is closer to, uh, yeah. to Indian food. So... You know that's um, that is the order which we had uh, we had packed. <laughs> Did you ever go to a White Sox game? Uh, White Sox? No, there's no way you could afford to go to a White Sox game. You're just across I, the expressway. Yeah, yeah, but you couldn't afford to go to any White Sox games or anything like that. In fact, uh, I remember this. So after a month, you're here, your hair grows. You want to have a haircut. And I remember the haircut at that time was $4. $4 you quickly multiply by your Indian currency. 7 rupees to a dollar. 28 rupees for a haircut. And I'm going like, no way, Jose, I'm going to have a haircut here. <laughs> from a regular hair salon. So you 28 rupees? <laughs> 28 rupees? My God, over there you get... I had never paid more than a quarter. That means uh, 100. More than 100 for a haircut. So, okay, I uh, talked to my other friends 
<laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> and so they say, we, we are also having the same shot. <laughs> so let's go cut each other's hair. Let's say if we can just find a scissor <laughs> and we'll cut each other's hair. And you're listening to Shali Kumar remembering and recounting his early days in the United States. An immigrant from India, an American dreamer, par excellence here on Our American Stories, Shali Kumar's story. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of this fantastic American Dreamers feature with Shali Kumar, the owner of AVG, a group of companies which design and manufacture electronic products, and all of them are made in America. And our own Alex Cortez continues with Shali in Chicago on his experience emigrating from India to the United States. How much money did you bring over? Uh, For me, it was a quite a challenge. It was, what I say is, uh, I came into the country with minus $5,000. Okay. <laughs> so how do you come up with <laughs> yeah, <there's an> explanation. <laughs> minus $5,000? Okay. So the uh, first year expenses at IIT, including your tuition and as well as your books and stay and mm-hmm. uh, dorm and all that was $5,000. So, in order to get a student visa to come to the United States, what we had to do was to show that I have $5,000 in a bank. The U.S. government required that. So, of course, my family has, you know, maybe they could come up with $20, <laughs> not, <laughs> not $5,000. So, we did a, a sort of a campaign to have from my friends and from relatives uh, $20, $30 here until we get $5,000. So we got $5,000 in the bank. You did? Yeah. Just from the people in your community. Yeah, people in the community. So, and, wow. and we got $5,000 in the bank. Uh, so you get a visa, you're on your way. So, but the money is gone <laughs> because they need the money back. So that money I did not have. So that's why I say... I had, theoretically, I had $5,000, but practically, I had zero. Okay, but you had to have a little bit above that for emergencies, right? That was, the dad was sent over there with $50. $50. $50 was uh, <laughs> given to me. Did you um, pay back all the people who contributed? Yeah, yeah, of course. Tell me then about founding this company. It must have been only a few years after you graduated from IIT. Yes, um, in uh, 1975, yeah. I was just inventing a lot of products and I was having a lot of fun. I've always, as a student and as an engineer, I've worked 100 hours a week. Not still. Still, still. I cannot. I work, I work 70 to 80 hours a week. It's hard to push it to 100. No, 100 hours a week. Really? I, 100 to 120 hours a week. I cannot work less than that, otherwise I'll, I'll get sick. 
so after Nanofast, that 10-person company, mm-hmm. two years later, I joined another company called National Controls Corporation. That was also, by the way, a very small company. They had, the company at the time I joined them had six employees. And uh, the two owners were John Ruzier and Gus Kuchaski. One was an Italian immigrant and the other was a Polish immigrant. And they were into this uh, controls company. And there was an engineer who was, they were not electronics. They were both mechanical. Okay. So they had an electronics engineer who was really more like a technician. He was blackmailing them every month. Double my salary, otherwise I quit. Sounds okay. pretty good. I don't know, it was very good. So, <laughs> for him. Yeah, for him. Well, no, it wasn't very good for him. Uh, they, they put up with it for about a year. And, and then they put an ad and they found me. Within a week, he was gone. And what I found, they, he was not really a very good designer. He was more like a technician. So he didn't really have a, a good theoretical uh, background to support his practical designs. So... Then I embarked on a period which was just absolutely phenomenal, 1972. Every month, a new product. Company grew from six employees to 200 employees within two years. Almost entirely because of your... Design, design, design. And, and you know, I was do the, doing the electronic circuit design. And, and those, two, those two guys, John and Gus, was very good in mechanical. So they'll put the package together, do the housing... And, you know, I was so elated that, you know, I can come up with a circuit. I could design a circuit in a day. Okay, so I designed a circuit and in a, in a month it's fully functional, ready to go to the market. Did you have a stake in the National Controls Company? What was that like? National Controls, what happened is... Did you ask they, for a raise? No, 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 no. I didn't even ask. I was so happy in just designing products, Okay. Uh, I didn't care for about the money at all. Not, not, not money at all. Okay, <laughs> and they all of a sudden came to me one day and offered me twenty five percent of ownership in the company. Twenty five percent. That's huge. Yep, just twenty five percent ownership in the company. And the company, when it grew so fast, they think they have made enough money. The company is so valuable now that they could sell the company. And I asked John Ruzier and Gus Kuchaski, please, please, I don't want to work for anybody else. You know, we have a great team here. I want to continue to design and you continue to do mechanical design. And that, that's really good life. So, no, 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 no. We got we to gotta sell. So I said, no, I don't really want to be sold. So they said, okay, why don't you buy? Why don't you buy us out? I, I'm an engineer. I don't know anything about finance. I don't know anything about uh, sales and marketing. Me? I'm not a salesman. So uh, to handle sales and marketing and finance and all that. So uh, what am I going to do? So they said um, they'll help. They, in fact, what they did is they set up the whole finance structure. The price to sell. Buy price, sell price. I didn't have nothing to do with it. They set everything up and sold the company to me. And they just uh, helped me out. And they, even, you know, so even after they retired, they kept helping you out? Yep. They kept helping me out. Very, very nice. Very good people. Uh, another thing that in that respect, I remember, I, I just told you that uh, I was really scared of sales. 
And so when my partner said, I guess you, you have to handle sales as well. So one day they um, wanted me to have a practice run and actually go out on a sales call. <laughs> and I was hiding from room to room. <laughs> literally. To, literally. literally. <laughs> like it was time for the call and they kept trying to find you? <laughs> they tried to find me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, uh, I hid myself in a toilet, <laughs> actually, paging oh. system and all that was not really that good, <laughs> that is in the 70s, and um, I said, me, a salesman, I, I don't think I could uh, make a sales call, then I remember my partner telling me these words, and he said, those days there was, used to be a uh, commercial the commercial used to just say, when E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. So uh, my partner says, you are E.F. Hutton of electronics and automation. Don't worry, they're going to listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> so I went with that confidence. And I, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought this <laughs> pretty easy. So... You know, people were all very, very respectful, and I enjoyed every moment of my 48 years in the United States. This is such a great country which uh, gives opportunity to anyone. The sky's the limit. In contrast, the sky wasn't the limit for everyone in Shally's native India under its former regime of a government-controlled economy. After 1991, when the country of India had gotten broke, the World Bank or IMF declared that India will no longer be given any dollar denomination funds and they had only two weeks supply left of dollar denominated funds to get food imports to even feed the country. The IMF essentially said, unless you deregulate and make it into a private economy, we're going to cut you off. And that's where India started on the path of capitalism. India was forced to deregulate. And prior to that, here's what you have to do to get a telephone line in your home. Minimum one year to apply for a telephone line at your home. What took a year? Government, because the whole telecom, telephone industry, would be, is, was governed by the government, controlled by the government. It's called licensed Raj. That is, uh, you control all your population through licenses. And anybody to start a business, you had to first get a license. When you have to get a license, you have to bribe people. Only large companies can manage that. There were no entrepreneurs, small businessmen. Uh, but just imagine today, out of a population of 1.3 billion people in India, there are at least a billion cell phones, maybe more. <laughs> Imagine if that 1991 episode did not happen and India was still waiting one year to get a telephone line. Yeah. 
what will be the communication status today in, in India? Just imagine. And here, the landlines and all that all got bypassed with the, <laughs> with the cell phone. Who needs a landline? That's Shelly Kumar, and I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that, Alex, our American Dreamers series. Shelly Kumar, the owner of AVG. His story here on Our American Stories.